this morning to anywhere you want in the Bible. It's all good. So I'm, I am going to be actually, yeah, yeah, I'm going to sing Monica's song again. They wanted me to sing it a second time. No, um, an old preacher friend of mine, Larry, not friend necessarily, but mentor, Larry Brown, used to always say, open anywhere you want. It's all good. But I'm going to actually be primarily in the gospel of Matthew chapter 14 and the gospel of John chapter 6. I'm not going to ask you to stand this morning, but if you want to kind of put your finger at Matthew 14 and then find John 6, you'll be pretty much where we're going to be. I want to ask you while you're finding your place, and I want you to think about this question this morning. If you're familiar with the scriptures, if you're familiar with the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that he did a lot of what we would say were miracles, miraculous things. In your mind, if you had to name the greatest miracle that Jesus performed here on earth during that ministry, what do you personally feel it would be? I won't ask you to shout that out, but I, I would venture a guess to say that probably the majority of us would not name the miracle that I'm going to preach on this morning. But the interesting thing about this miracle is it is the only one that Jesus performed that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Now, I thought of all the things that would have been recorded for us that Jesus did in every one of those Gospel accounts, number one, there would be more than just one event. And number two, in my mind, it wouldn't have been this one. As great as this is, I don't know that this is what I would call the greatest miracle if you want to categorize things. But yet here it is in all four of these accounts. And so... I think that God definitely wants us to see this and to learn from this and to try to make an application of this. So I want to preach to you this morning from the story about the five loaves of bread and the two fish that became lunch for a great multitude. And I want to title this message, Lessons from the Loaves. I want us to look at this and see what God wants us to learn about who Jesus is and about how miraculous things can take place through faith when we trust Him. And so... Just to kind of give you the background of this story, they have crossed, Jesus and his disciples have crossed the Sea of Galilee, and they are in an area called Bethsaida, not Bethesda, but Bethsaida, and they are there in this place, mountains on the side, a desert area in front of them, and the crowds have followed Jesus, as they often did, and Jesus is completely God. And he's completely man. He is the only person who can say that. Fully God, fully man in one person. And so in his humanity, Jesus understands all of the things that we go through. He hungered. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was tempted. That is how Jesus, being God, can still relate to us as people. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have someone that can relate to us. The only difference is Jesus never sinned where we do. But he is there. All these people are coming to him. They want healed. They want miracles to be performed. They're doing this, but they're tired. They're wore out. And so they go up into the mountains to try to get away for a minute, to try to have a meal of their own in peace. If you've got little kids, you know how that is. You try to lock yourself there, and they're peeking under the door and knocking on the door, trying to find out where you went. That's kind of how this was. They could not get a moment's quiet and peace. And so that, that all these people are coming, and it's getting near evening. And 
all these folks are there. They're tired. They're hungry. The disciples, they're tired. They're hungry. Jesus is no doubt tired and hungry in his humanity as well. And so that's kind of the backdrop of this story. And I want us to think about the things that happen in this story. And over and over, I want to draw attention to the little things that we see mentioned in this story. And in the midst of all the little things, a great big God that is able to use those little things or help us through those little things to see how he is so much bigger than any problem we face, any doubt we have, any fear that comes at us. God is able to use little things. Matter of fact, throughout the Bible, I thought about it this week as I was doing this lesson, everything that God did use in our mind, in our human perspective, it was small. Like, think about Moses standing at the Red Sea with millions of Egyptians behind him and millions of the Israelites around him and the water in front of them. And God tells him to take his staff, his rod, and touch the water. And that little rod, that little staff, empowered by a big God, caused the water to part. Think about all those people out in the wilderness, hungry, complaining, and God sends a little seed about that size called manna to feed those folks over and over and over again. David standing before a giant nine foot, nine inches tall and uses a little stone to kill him and bring glory to God. God uses little things like me and you to do great things. I saw a bunch of what probably would, we could call just plain ordinary folks yesterday down in a parking lot doing some great things for God. You say, well, I don't know if it was that great. What did we really do? Anytime you proclaim the Word of God, anytime you share the Word of God, friends, I don't think that this is just a book, and I don't think I'm just praying and my prayers are just hitting the ceiling and going no farther. I know who's on the other end of that. I know the author of the book. And so it means much more than just reading some words or praying a prayer. It means that I'm connected to the very one that I'm having the conversation with and that he's having a conversation back. And that means so much more. And I hope you'll see that this morning, that anything in the hands of God is enough, including you and including me. We can't do it on our own. We talked about it in Sunday school. We're not able to do these things. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But you can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That is the key, the connection to Him, and that connection is made by faith. We talked about it last week. It's not about the size of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. And when your faith is in Christ, it will always be enough. It will always be enough. But the disciples struggled with this, and you and I struggle with this, because we're human beings. We're still in the flesh. We still are tempted and prone to sin. And so no matter how many times I preach this, no matter how many times we're taught this, we still have problems sometimes applying it. But I hope today God will use this to reaffirm in your life that no matter how small or insignificant you feel or are, God has a plan and a purpose for you, and he wants to use you. If he's called you to it, he wants to use you to do it. All right? So let's look at three things this morning in this text. And like I said, we'll flip around. You don't have to flip around, but uh, I'm going to kind of quote from the different gospel accounts of this story since it's in all four. And I want you to see, number one, that the disciples, and in turn us at times, had a little vision. They had a small vision of things. What do you, what do you mean, Pastor? 
in Mark's account, really in all these accounts, but I just like the way that Mark just bluntly says it, in Mark 6, 36, notice how as the disciples look out, they see this crowd, they see that it's sunset, it's getting late, and there's a big need here. These folks are hungry, they're tired, and the disciples are looking at it and saying, let's just call it quits here. It's been a long day. And notice what they say in Mark 6:36. Look at the first three words. What's that say up there on the screen? Send them away. Here it is. These folks have made a long journey. They have been there all day listening to Jesus teach, being healed of diseases, seeing the love and compassion of Christ. And no doubt the disciples had shown love and compassion too. But there was only so much that they could do, humanly speaking. And so they look out at this and they say, Lord, time to go home. Send them away. It's late. We are tired. They are needy. Let's start this again tomorrow. I want you to notice the difference between the disciples and us. Let's be honest. That would, I was tired yesterday by 4 o'clock. I was ready to pack up the tables and go on home. I'm going to be honest. I loved it, and a part of me wanted to stay, but physically speaking, I was tired, right? But notice Jesus' response and how much different it is than the disciples. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 14, 14, notice what it says about Jesus. When Jesus went out, he saw this great multitude, and what happens in Jesus' eyes? How does he view the pro- what, what we would call a problem? How does he view it? He was moved with compassion for them, and he continues to minister to them. He was moved. But I want you to see something in the middle of that. And when Jesus went out, he saw, what did he see? What does that say? He saw a great multitude. The disciples looked out at the same group of people. They were all seeing the same thing. The disciples looked out and they saw a problem. They saw a problem. Jesus looked out and he saw people. That's a big difference that I think God showed me that this week as I was preparing this message. And I think that that is critical for us to distinguish when we do ministry or we just try to live our lives as believers. Jesus saw 5,000 people. Now, I want to be clear about this. When the Bible records numbers of crowds, a lot of times it's just speaking of the men. So in this account, there were way more than 5,000 people. It says in the gospel accounts, plus women and children. So we could have literally been talking ten to 15,000 people in this crowd. Okay? And so Jesus looks out, since it gives us the number of 5,000, we'll go with that number. Jesus looks out and sees 5,000 people. The disciples looked out and saw 5,000 problems. And there's a difference there. Because this is what I want to share with you in this first point with this little vision. And, and, and I, I hope that I don't stomp on your toes too much this morning, but I won't apologize if I do because we're all guilty of this. Many times people come looking for Jesus and it's His people that send them away. Amen? Amen? I want you to think about this question, and I had to ask it of myself. 
Does, does my faith and my life attract people or does it repel them? Now listen, let me be clear. When we speak the truth, hopefully we speak it in love, but when we speak the truth, it is going to repel people. So we, we don't compromise the Word of God. We don't water down the Word of God just so people will like us. The too many churches are doing that now. We need to stand on the truth and understand that at times that is going to cause division. It said it would. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. It will divide people. If you're standing on the truth and doing it in love, expect that. But I'm asking you, is the way that you conduct yourself, is the way that you speak. Paul said, let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to speak to one another. We've got to be careful how we conduct ourselves, how we speak to people. A lot of times I found people almost have a badge of honor because of how many people they've ran off. Well, I told them, we don't put up with that stuff in my church. And they're almost proud of how many people they've ran off. I think, look, there's a time to stand and there's hills to die on, but if weekly you're running off more people than you're attracting, there's a problem with you. It's not everybody else, right? You need to look at the plank in your own eye before you were about the speck in everybody else's right there's one holy spirit and it's not you if you're worried about their sin spend more time praying for them and less time criticizing them and i bet something might change you see we have got to be careful that we're not just the problem and looking at everybody else as though there's five thousand problems when we're the part of the problem too see and so what i wanted you to understand and i think some of you know this but ministry is messy if you're out there, especially on the streets, ministering to people that aren't the average Sunday morning crowd, you're going to see that things can get really messy. We're in the middle of a middle class, more outside the city limits kind of place. And so we might not have the, the traffic that an inner city church would have. We might not have the, the addicts and the drunks and the prostitutes coming in off the streets that would happen per se in the middle of a big city. But what if they did? What if there was someone here this morning in that situation? How would we view them? How would we treat them? Would we say, amen, I, I pray that we would. That's the church answer, right? That's the biblical answer. But a lot of times as Christians, we know the biblical answer, but we don't live the biblical answer. And that's the difference. And, and let's be honest, we all do that. There's times when we look at people, when they sit down next to us at street ministry, and, and we start to have all kinds of thoughts. We know that we should love them where they are and share Jesus with they are, but we're noticing the track marks in their arm. We're noticing the tattoos all over them. We're noticing that they're kind of dirty and they might not smell all that good and they talk funny and their teeth are all messed up. And we can't get past what we're seeing to just see underneath all that is a soul that God created and that God loves that needs the gospel and needs Jesus. You see, we do. That's the amazing thing about Jesus is when he looked at something, he saw the person. He saw the person. He didn't, he didn't excuse their sin and he didn't dismiss their sin. But he went deeper with that person and he showed them that, yes, you have issues, that your life is messy. But he didn't just focus on that. He said, yes, here's an issue. The, the woman at the well. Yes, you, you have five husbands. That's a problem. But I got something better for you. I've got living water that you'll never thirst again if you receive this, which was himself. And her life changed. She went back to the village and told everybody and brought people with her. 
and they got saved. You see, and a lot of times in ministry, we look at the people that we think are problems and we say, Lord, just send them somewhere else. Send them to the to, to church down the street. They're a problem. And listen, sometimes people are problematic, all of us. But I think if, if we want to love them and treat them like Jesus, we've got to meet them where they are and understand that God, look, there is a lot of, in my opinion, I might be biased, but there are some amazing Christians in this church. And I thank God for you guys. But you didn't start out that way. I mean, you might have had some church background and upbringing and some morals, and you might have always had decent clothes and money in your pocket. I'm not saying you were, everybody in here was down and out, but all of you were lost at one point. All of you were separated from Christ and on your way to hell until God found you and God changed you, and He's still changing you. And so if someone comes in here this morning or we run into someone in our lives or we got family members that are difficult, don't focus on all the problems. Focus on who they could be in Christ and don't stop doing what you can do to make sure they know Him. Pray for them. Love them. Preach Jesus to them. And do what you can do to not see them just as a problem but as a person. The disciples had too small of a view of God. They thought, man, we can't take care of all these people. They're needy. Send them home. And let's work on this tomorrow when they've ate and arrested and were rested. They didn't think about the fact that this was Jesus, the Son of God, right there with them. The same Jesus whose spirit lives in me and you, right? There's not a problem too big for God to handle. Too big for us, not big, too big for God. So they had a little vision. And number two, they had a little faith. Look at what else. It's interesting to me, and we do this too. I love how... It's so easy for us to say, man, I, I can't believe Israel in the Old Testament was so stubborn and they did all that stuff and the disciples were so silly. We're the same way. We are, you know. I mean, reading it, we're like, how can they be so dumb? Like they saw everything. Well, we might not see it with our eyes, but we see it by faith. And we've been, if you've been walking with Jesus long enough, you know that he's faithful. You know that he's brought you through every problem. That doesn't mean you never have doubts or trials or questions. We're going to have those till we go to see him face to face. But nonetheless, you know that God has been faithful. If you're a true child of God, you cannot sit here for a minute and honestly look me in the face and say that God has been unfaithful to you. He has kept his promises. And if he hasn't kept them, that doesn't mean that he won't. just hasn't been time yet. But I can tell you this, sometimes we have a little faith. And again, I want to reiterate what I've been telling you. It's not the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith. So I'm not saying that the disciples just had a small faith and they needed a big, big faith. What I'm saying is their faith, probably better than a little faith, I should say they had a misplaced faith. They were not looking at Jesus. They had gotten their eyes off of things. And so it's interesting, you, I showed you those verses. They went to Jesus, just like we do, and they said, God, Jesus, this is what you need to do. I've got, I've got a plan. Don't worry, God. I've got it figured out. This is what you should do, and everything will be okay. Don't we pray that way? God, listen, I've got a problem, and this is what I need you to do. We pray that way, don't we? God does not need our opinion. He does not need our suggestions, and he certainly does not need our help. We need his. But we reverse the roles. They said, you need to send these folks away because they are needy, and we can't meet their need. And so look at what Jesus does in Matthew 14, verse 16. 
They went to him and said, send them away. Here's how Jesus responds to them. You, notice this, you give them something to eat. Matthew 14, 16. You give them something to eat. They said, Jesus, you send them away. He turns it around back on them. You feed them. Imagine what they thought. We, we just came to you because there is no way on earth that we can do anything with this. You need to send them away. Now you want us to give them something to eat. And in, in the Greek, that's a command. That's not a suggestion. He is making a command there. Do this. Go out there and feed these people. He didn't do that because he felt that they had the means or the ability. He's trying to adjust their faith. He wants them to understand. If you notice in John's account of this same story, Philip is kind of the one that speaks up on their behalf. And in John 6, verses 5 and 6, Jesus lifts up his eyes, it says, and he saw the great multitude coming toward him. And he says to Philip, listen to how Jesus asked this question towards Philip. Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Again, he's bringing it down to their level. He wasn't going to go buy anything. But he's trying to make them use their logic to see how illogical it is. But a lot of times faith is illogical, isn't it? Like when, when you trust, if you're only trusting God for things that you can do on your own, you don't need God. We don't pray God-sized prayers. We pray comfortable prayers. God, I, if, if you can, and I hope, and maybe this person's sick, and just maybe I, I hope you might think about them. And look, I, I'm not saying that God heals every sick person, and I'm not saying that God restores every marriage, and I'm not saying that God removes every problem. But he can. And I don't know what he's going to do, but I'm going to pray like I do. I'm going to pray like I know that person's going to be healed. I'm going to pray like I know that marriage is going to be restored. I'm going to pray like everybody in this room that's lost is going to leave here saved today. I'm not saying that will happen, but it can because my faith is in Him. We pray comfortable prayers, little prayers. Because if it doesn't work, we can say, well, i got a plan B. I can default back to me. Or we want to do things for God, but we don't want to step too far out of our comfort zone. Well, listen... I know that God's calling me to preach, but I could never stand up there in a pulpit and do what pastor does, so I'll just do something easy, like leave a track on the table for my waitress. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but if God's calling you to preach, leaving the tract on the table is not going to replace the call on your life. If God's got something for you to do, don't negotiate with Him. It won't work. God's called you to it, and that's what He wants you to do. You have to step out by faith and trust Him. He knows the circumstance. He knows the answer. He wants you to trust Him. He may not tell you what the answer is going to be. Many times faith steps out before you have any idea how the problem is going to be resolved or how the circumstance is going to go. We want to know the answer, and then we'll say, okay, now I know what's going on, now I'll, now I'll go. That's not how it works. You step out by faith. He called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He didn't know where he was going. He just said, come on, we're going. And Abraham stepped out and God led him along the way. Proverbs 15.3 says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. There's not anywhere that you can go where God does not know where you're at and what you're doing and what you need. Keeping watch on the evil and the good. Think about it in the Bible again, guys. Abraham and Isaac 
They're on their way. God says, go and offer up your only son Isaac as a sacrifice. Isaac doesn't know what's going on. Abraham doesn't know what's going on, but he already believed that God was going to provide. He told Isaac that. God will provide a lamb for the, a ram for the sacrifice. Did God do that? You betcha. Caught in the thicket over there was the ram that was needed for the sacrifice. God already had it all figured out. One of my favorite quotes, and I, I don't have it in front of me word for word, but it was about Zacchaeus. I've, I've shared this with you before. And it was, you know, the story of Zacchaeus. He comes along. Jesus is coming. He can't see him because he's short, so he climbs up that sycamore tree. God had planted that sycamore tree decades before Zacchaeus ever needed it. I love that. God has prepared things long ago for the exact moment that we'll need them. But we've got to see it by faith. We've got to see it by trusting in the Word of God. And that's where the disciples were struggling. They saw the problems. Jesus saw the people. They didn't see the Jesus standing next to them. They were thinking, how can we do this? We don't have enough money. We don't have the means. We don't have it. We don't have. We don't have. We don't have. No, you don't have. But God does. You can't exhaust the riches of God. That was in our confession verse. He is able to give exceedingly and abundantly above whatever we think or ask according to His riches and glory. What a promise. They had little faith. And God is teaching them something. And that brings us to the last thing I want you to see here this morning. They had a little vision. They had a little faith. And they had little provisions. They didn't have a lot to work with. A lot of you say this morning, well, I would like to do more for God, but I'm just not that talented. I can't sing like the folks on the stage. I can't preach like Pastor. I can't teach like Daryl. I can't be outgoing like Rosie. I mean, you go down the list and you start comparing yourself. God didn't make you like anybody else. He made you you, and He wants to use you. That was one of the hardest things when I got called into the ministry was just trying to figure out who I was. I wanted to be like my preacher. I wanted to be like the preacher on TV. I, some, one Sunday, I'm hooting and hollering, trying to preach like this guy. The next Sunday, I'm sitting down, not moving around. I, you know, I didn't know what I needed to do. I just needed to be me. I'm not John MacArthur, David Jeremiah, Adrian Rogers, or Billy Graham. I'm me. And I'm not going to try to be those guys. God used them and called them and did great things through them. And I just want to do my part to do whatever God wants me to do. And that's what He wants to do with you. Get your eyes on Him and off everybody else. Get your eyes on Him and get them off your shortcomings and why you can't do things and say, God, you can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Help me. Use me. And here it is. This is amazing to me. They're trying to figure it out. Jesus says, what are we going to do? And they still don't quite get it, do they? So they, they, I think they start looking around and talking to each other and they see this little boy. And he's got five loaves and two fish. This is not a combo meal at Long John Silver's. When it says loaves and fish, they're little pressed down cakes and some little salted fish like sardines. So he had basically five biscuits and two sardines. That's what we're working with to feed 15,000 or so people with the women and children. So their plan didn't get any better. And so, in John chapter 6, verse 9, they even say so much to him. They, they found this little boy with the fish and the loaves, and they say, what are they, these, this little offering, what are they among so many? 
Like, this is not going to work, but here, this is all we got, God. Here it is. And notice in verse 10, I loved, I loved, I read this this week, and it just blessed me. Jesus said to them, make them sit down. We're going to eat. We're about to have a feast. You just sit them down and watch me work. That, to me, just blessed me. God was not worried. He was not concerned. He was not in a rush. He just said, sit them down, get them organized. I'm going to show you how they're going to eat. He wanted them to trust him. And here's the thing. Look at verse 11, John chapter 6, verse 11. Jesus, it says, took the loaves and he blessed them. And then he took the fish and he did the same. Don't, don't rush past that for a minute. I want, I, again, so many things this week I felt like I, I saw that I never had seen before when I studied this. Here's a question that I, I, I asked myself. Five loaves and two fish. Jesus took it and he blessed it and he used it. Could Jesus have used three loaves and one fish and done the same thing? I believe he could have. Could he use two loaves and half of a fish and done the same miracle? I believe so. But here's what I think we need to learn about this. The little boy gave it all. He didn't hold back a little bit and say, well, this is Jesus. I'm going to keep my little portion for me. I'm going to keep a biscuit and a, and a fish for me, and Jesus can have the rest. He gave him everything. And that's where we struggle sometimes in our walk of faith. We say, that's Jesus, and yep, he's made these promises, and yep, he can do it. But just in case, I'm going to tuck a little bit aside for me and give him the, less, the rest. Jesus wants all of you. He wants everything because he can do more with your little offering than you can do with keeping it. Whether that's financially, whether that is your life, whether that is anything, God wants you to trust him with all of it. And that's hard. I'm not standing here this morning saying, I've got that all figured out and I'm good at it. It's difficult. But that is what he wants and that is what he will use Think about the widow's might when she threw that in. Everything she had, two little coins. Among, she's standing in the middle of the temple treasury where all the Pharisees are just dumping in their money. And they made sure like they, they took the money. You ever go to like the grocery store where they have that change thing and people are pouring it in here and then you hear it? Well, the, the temple had receptacles where you would put your money in. And so the Pharisees, when they would give, they made sure that everybody saw they were like the guy up Meyer shaking the money into the thing, and it's making all sorts of racket, and everybody's looking out like, man, look how much money they're dumping in. And here's this little woman, and she, clink, clink, two little coins go in the thing, right? But what did Jesus say about her faith? Not the size of the offering, the faith that it took to give that. He was much more impressed with her heart than he was with their outward show because she gave everything that she had. Think about King David when we were just talking about him not long ago. All the other brothers looked great. All the other brothers had accolades and they would have been the ones that we would have chose. And they go down the list and none of the brothers are the one. And Samuel looks at Jesse and says, is that all your kids? And he says, well, there's one more out there feeding the, feeding the sheep, taking care of them. And here comes David, the one that nobody would have picked. 
And God said, that's my man. That's the one. It's the one I want to use. You see? Because God looks at the heart. Whereas we look at the outward appearance. Hudson Taylor, who was a great missionary to China. I love this quote by him. He said, anything that you do for God works in three stages. Impossible, difficult, done. I love that. Impossible, difficult, done. That's exactly what we see in this story. An impossible situation through the eyes of the disciple. Jesus doubles down. What are we going to do, guys? How are we going to feed them? Well, we got five loaves and two fish. How's that? Difficult. Jesus says, sit them down and watch me work. And it's done. He takes care of it. You know the rest of the story. He multiplies the loaves and the fishes. Everybody eats as much as they want. And God is glorified. And the people are sustained. And hopefully their faith is increased and their vision broadens. And when they had very little in the hands of God, it became more than enough. And as we close, I want you to see one more point that I think is important for us, and I'm done. Verse 13 of John 6. Therefore, after this is all done and everybody's full, therefore they gathered them up and filled, what's that say? I don't believe there's anything in God's Word that is just happenstance. I don't think God just puts things in there just because it sounds like a good, a good number. So I was praying, God, why 12 baskets? And it hit me. Maybe you already know the answer. I didn't. I never thought about it. How many disciples were there? Twelve. Each one of them took home a basket of leftovers. Because in the morning, all the doubts and all the fears and all the what-ifs and all the things that you and I go through, we can be on cloud nine on Sunday. Monday comes around, and like Monica's saying, it's like another Friday, and we're worried again, we're doubting again, we're fearful again. Where are you, God? How are we going to get through this? Same old things. But listen... When they swung open the refrigerator to get breakfast, what was staring at them in the face? The basket full of leftovers that reminded them what God had just done for them the day before. And all of the fears and all of the doubts and all the questions that came on Monday found their answer on what happened on Sunday. That Jesus had done that miracle then. He's the same God today. He's going to get you through the same way that He does by faith and trusting in Him. But we need reminders. And God gave them a reminder and He gives us a reminder. Maybe today is your reminder. Maybe today this message is your reminder that you can trust God with whatever you're going through. Maybe it's your reminder that you've got difficult people in your life, in your family, in the church, in your workplace. Stop looking at them as problems and see them through the eyes of Jesus. You can't do that without Him. You can't treat them how they ought to be treated in Christ unless you surrender how much of yourself to Him? All of them. You're like, well, I treat them like Jesus Monday through Thursday, but on Friday I'm going to let them have it because they've got all my last nerve, and by Friday they're going to get a piece of my mind. That's not how we do it, church. That's not what's what we want to do, but that's not how we should do it. We've got to surrender ourselves. And listen, when we act far less than Jesus, we have got to go and be repentant and honest to them and to Him. Not just to Him. We say, God, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. But we don't tell them that. We need to go to them. If you've wronged somebody in this church, wronged somebody in your family, wronged somebody in your workplace, 
you need to be the bigger person, the Bible-believing Christian, and say, hey, I have not treated you the way that I am supposed to in Christ, and for that I am sorry, and I will try my best to live more like Jesus. Don't see him as a problem. See him as a person that needs Jesus, and let them see Jesus in you. And most of all, guys, if, if you don't know this Jesus, today is the day that you can have a relationship with him. You say, how, how does that happen? You believe that he is who he says he is. That he is the sinless son of God that came here and died on a cross. You say, why did he do that? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And your sin separates you from him forever. You need someone to pay the debt that you and I can't pay. And that's what Jesus did. He died on the cross. He shed his blood. God poured out his wrath on his own son. But that's not enough. It's enough to make the payment, but it's not enough to make it personal. You've got to receive that gift. Jesus died for all, but not all are saved. When we all get to heaven is not true of everybody, only believers. You have to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You have to trust Him and believe in Him alone. And then it becomes personal. And then you can sing that song, When I get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Right? Have you done that? Do you believe that three days later he rose from the grave, defeating death forever and declaring victory for us, for all who have trusted him? If you've never done that, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I'm going to invite Phyllis and Andy to come. And as we give this time of invitation, it's your opportunity to respond. You respond in faith. I can't save you, but I can sure pray with you. Your family can't, pray with you, can't save you, but they can certainly come and pray with you. Grandma, grandpa, friends, if you need somebody to come with you, bring them. But this is between you and God. What do you need to trust him with? What is he calling you to do? And you say, well, I know, I know he can and I know I should, but I just, I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not the same excuses that the disciples made. You're not, no, you're not. You're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. You're not, I know all that. I don't either, guys. We're not asking that question. What will you do with Jesus? Will you trust him and let him take care of the rest? If you're ready to do that, when we sing this song of invitation, you come. And let's get things right today before we leave. Father, we thank you this morning for this, this word, Lord, that has helped me so much this week and just been reaffirmed yesterday through our outreach and through the Sunday school and even through the songs. Lord, I thank you that uh, I feel like I'm right where you wanted me to be this morning with this message. And I just pray, God, that you will use it to bring you glory. Your word does never return void. And I pray even now, Lord, that you're dealing with hearts, that you are changing lives, that you are convicting people of sin and areas in their heart that they need to get right and places they need to serve. And God, we will rejoice and are rejoicing what we believe you're doing and what you will do, Lord. So help us now to respond to your voice. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.